Psalm chapter 4. Last week I confessed that I wasn't very good at preaching psalms, um, but I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the, the sermon that I gave last week on, on the book of Psalms. So I said, you know what, if it goes well, I'm going to do another one. And so I'm going to do one today, and I'm even going to do one again next week. Um, and so Psalm chapter 4, Psalm chapter 4 is the one that we're looking at uh, this morning. We'll read it verse by verse. Uh, last week in, in the congregational prayer, uh, Caroline referenced uh, a theologian. She referenced a theologian. And the theologian's name is Walter Brueggemann, uh, and he's he's really good theologian. He's a, he's a, he's one that a friend of mine he quotes him all the time. And uh, uh, when I was looking for for resources for um, for preaching Psalms, uh, I was pointed to him. Uh, and so he's got he's got a very good take on the Psalms. Uh, and so I'm going to I'm going to give you his take on, on on the Psalms and what some of the Psalms mean, some of the themes in Psalms. And it really helps me uh, to uh, to understand this. So there are certain there are certain different kinds of psalms. You can kind of you can you can put them into different categories, and these aren't the only categories that you could put them into. Uh, but when you think about the uh, the meaning of a psalm, when you're reading through a psalm, this is a good way to sort of think about it and say, what should this psalm do for me? What should this psalm do for me? And so some of the psalms are called psalms of orientation, psalms of orientation, psalms that give you a bla- a baseline for living. Un- we hold unwaveringly to these truths, these truths. Okay, these are the truths that we know. This is the stuff. This is the theology. If we don't understand any, hardly any other theology at all, these are the things that we absolutely understand. These are the things that tell us the truth about life. And if you want a good example of a psalm of orientation, just read Psalm 1. Psalm 1 tells you exactly. The righteous are like this. The wicked are like this. Okay, And it just tells you, gives you a very plain and simple understanding of uh, of life. And so there are several psalms that are psalms of orientation. There are some psalms that are called psalms of ascension uh, and, and psalms of sort of coronation. And some of those are things that are meant to orient you towards God, towards Jerusalem, towards temple worship, towards all of that. Those things are meant to orient, orient you and, and give you this, this firm foundation upon uh, which to live. And remember, psalms are songs. They are songs. They are meant to be sung. And so we do that. This morning we sang a psalm of orientation. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. And how much theology is in there? Jesus loves you. He takes you from your weakened spiritual state to a stronger spiritual state because He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. Everything else in life is measured off of Him. That's what a cornerstone was. When you set the cornerstone, you're saying this is the thing that is that is perfect and true. Uh, if anything else is off, it means it's not in alignment with the cornerstone. Cornerstone right here. The cornerstone is the foundation, and it's also the the thing off of which everything else is measured. That's a great psalm that we sang, song that we sang of of orientation. But then there are other psalms. Uh, The psalms that we preached last week, and I think the one this week too, can be called psalms of disorientation. And psalms of disorientation are when uh, things don't line up with your orientation. Uh, Things are happening in life that I didn't expect to happen. so in orientation, I know that God is good and God loves me. But are there times that you don't feel like God is good, that you don't feel like God loves you? You become disoriented. You become disoriented. Wait, wait a second. What's going on here? I have absolutely no idea how to interpret the events around me in light of uh, I. this is me. I'm a Christian and God is my Savior and I have been praying for things and then they don't work out and then everything just sort of collapses around me. I thought that wasn't supposed to happen. I thought that 
and you become disoriented, disoriented. So many of the Psalms are the psalmist sitting just on his knees crying out, tearing his robes and saying, what in the world is going on here? I thought this wasn't supposed to happen to me. Why isn't God hearing my prayers? Why isn't he answering my prayers? What's going on? I have no idea how to interpret all that's going on around me. I'm so disoriented. I don't know which way is up. I don't know which way is north anymore. What is going on? That's a psalm of disorientation. And so with you in your life, whenever you uh, feel disoriented, I promise there's a psalm for you. There's a psalm that you can sit down and say, it's the country music of the Old Testament. Everything's going wrong. Okay? But, but, and we're going to read a, a different one next week, Psalm number 30. You should read it between now and next week. Psalms of new orientation, new orientation, not reorientation, by the way, new orientation. And what he's really saying here is that um, your, your previous orientation was good, but not good enough. It was accurate, but not precise. So what happens in, in your Christian life is that there are things you know, you absolutely know. And then the disorientation comes and you say, I thought I knew, I don't know. And so you go back through, and, and after the, maybe after the heartache or the, the, the tragedy, whatever it is that caused the disorientation, after that's over, and you can sort of think back over and debrief everything that's happened with the Lord, you can come back and say, well, this experience taught me this. And so I used to know this, and that's still true, but now I see it through this lens. I th- see it through life experience, and now my new orientation is better than my old one because it's more accurate, it's more precise, it's been tested. And I can say, well, there are certain times that uh, these rules don't apply or, the, you know, uh, these, are, these are these foundational principles and they're not, they're not wrong, they're not wrong, but that doesn't mean that everything is going to be smooth and easy for me, okay? So Psalms of New Orientation, and I'm excited about the one next week because I, when I read through it, I felt like... I felt, um, this is a person singing a testimony, sort of like what we hear in Celebrate Recovery often, uh, testimonies of people who've just been through the ringer, uh, and then they come out with a great testimony and, and, and say, you know, let me tell you about what happened to me. Let me tell you about what I've learned. Let me t- I was raised this way, uh, and, and then this happened, and now I know this better. And so it's sort of like a person giving a testimony. Um, so anyway, come, come back next week. Make sure you hear Psalm number 30, uh, because it's, it's sort of about uh, what it reminds me of is a person who has had terrible things happen in their life, and yet they're worshiping more spiritually louder, more energetically than anybody around them. Such to the point that people want to go up and say, I gotta hear what happened to you. I gotta hear your story. I gotta hear, I gotta hear about this because you're worshiping in a way that I've never worshiped. And then the person says, well, just let me tell you. Just let me tell you. Okay? Psalms of orientation, Psalms of disorientation, Psalms of new orientation. And the fact is today I think we're going to hear some of the orientation and disorientation in the words of the psalmist. Okay? All right. Do you remember this guy? you recognize that guy? Anybody recognize that guy? Um, 
How dare I bring Al Franken's name into a sermon, but here I am. Al Franken, who was on Saturday Night Live back in the 90s, had a character that he did named Stuart Smalley. Stuart Smalley. And he would uh, do this thing called daily affirmation. And they were, they were hilarious because they were silly, okay? Uh, but he would look in the mirror at himself and say, I'm good enough. You can do it. You know, you can make it. You can do it because I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. Okay? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. That's what he would say. I'm surprised you didn't know this. Well, don't look it up. It's awful. But And then he would turn around and look at the camera and talk about life's problems. And it was obviously clear that he had nothing together. Okay, And yet he did these things called daily affirmations. There was a really funny one that he did with Michael Jordan where he was trying to teach Michael Jordan some um, some motivational skills. This is after his fourth or fifth championship going into the sixth one. And he says, uh, and he gives them all the daily affirmations. And at the end of it, he says, now, Michael, don't you feel better? And Michael looks at him and says, well, to tell you the truth, Stuart, I didn't feel bad. And it was really funny. But the reason it's funny, the reason it's funny is partly because it's just sort of poking fun at pop psychology, the pop psychology that we read on, on the internet, stuff that f- comes up on Facebook. Of course, this is before Facebook. Um, but it's also a little bit true. It, it also tugs at the heartstrings because I have a feeling, I don't know you and I don't know all about you, but I have a feeling that at some point or another, you've looked in the mirror and tried to give yourself a pep talk. Okay. You've looked in the mirror and given yourself a pep talk. And I don't know if you felt silly or not. Um, I hope you didn't because I hope that the pep talk worked. But if it didn't, well, you're in good company. In Psalm chapter 4, uh, we hear somebody uh, also giving himself a pep talk at one point uh, in here. But he starts off, he starts off with a little bit of orientation and disorientation in his life. And let's pray before we go any further. Lord, we're looking at your word this morning, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will teach us from it. Lord, help us to always, just like a compass, no matter which way the needle goes, help us to always come right straight back to you. Please teach us this morning, Holy Spirit. You be our teacher. No matter what I say, you be the teacher this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Answer me when I call to you, O God who declares me innocent. Free me from my troubles. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Um, one of the first things that I'll tell you about this psalm is that it reads very different in different translations. It reads very different in different translations. And so there's something difficult about the Hebrew in this. So much of the Bible, some of the verses, some of the translations, they're almost word for word. And if you ever come across that, that means those passages are very easy to translate. They're, they're very uh, clear. There's no problem uh, translating them. But sometimes you'll come across things that you either don't know how to translate or you don't know how to interpret, uh, so you don't know what it means. So it's very hard to render it. And in the uh, in the in some other versions, it it, it's, it doesn't say God who clar- who declares me innocence. It'll say O righteous God, or it'll say God of my righteous right hand, something like that. So it's very it's very interesting when you come across verses. I, I would encourage you look at different translations because you can tell you can start to see how difficult a translator uh, translator's job is. Okay. And so there's some orientation uh, in here that I want to point out. Answer me when I call you. That means that this psalmist, the psalmist here, and it's David, um, he, 
He knows that God hears him. He knows that God hears him. And we take that for granted. But I think in a lot of pagan culture and a lot of religion around the world, you really don't have that understanding. You don't have that guarantee that the God that you're worshiping hears you and will answer you. You go to think of a pagan idol worshiper that, that you don't know what the, the pagan God requires. You come and you, you give it some kind of a sacrifice or anything like that. You don't know if they accepted the sacrifice or if they didn't accept the sacrifice. You have no idea if that pagan God heard you and will answer according to what you asked or not. But when the psalmist here comes to God, he says, answer me when I call to you. Answer me when I call to you. And he might feel like, hey, why aren't you answering me now? I know you've heard me in the past. What's going on here? But he, and he, and he calls God either, and this is, this is some good orientation, either God who is righteous or God who declares me innocent. God who declares me innocent. And theologically, both are correct. That's why, uh, uh it's hard, to, it may be hard to translate, but you can't miss either way you do it. Because is God righteous? Absolutely. Who can declare you righteous? Here we are, uh, filthy, wicked sinners. There's only one being in the universe that could possibly declare you righteous. And who would that be? That would be God. That would be God. So he knows God is a forgiving God. God can make you righteous. Even when you're evil, God can make you righteous. And then he says, free me from my troubles. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. And so then even from the first verse here, we start to get... Um, a real, some of these real statements of disorientation, disorientation. So Lord, you've declared me innocent. You've declared me innocent. So in my orientation or in my thought, if I'm innocent, why in the world should I feel like I'm being punished? Why in the world should all of these calamities be falling around me? Because I thought you only punish the wicked, but you always bless the righteous. But you've declared me righteous, and yet sometimes I feel like you're treating me like a sinner. And so I don't know if you've had that in your life. If you, you feel like you've making all, been making all kinds of spiritual progress, you've been maturing, you've been growing, you've been reading your Bible really well, you've been spending time in prayer just like you're supposed to do, you're even reading some C.S. Lewis. Whatever you're doing, you're, you're adding it all in there. You're doing everything that you know a Christian is supposed to do. Maybe you're even volunteering your time, trying to, to bless, the, bless the people around you. And then all of a sudden, here comes trouble. Well, I thought I wasn't supposed to have trouble. I thought it was supposed to be smooth sailing from here on out. And that is one of the biggest uh, sort of pitfalls that new Christians come across is that they think, they think that uh, just because I've started going to church and I've started reading my Bible, I've started praying like, exactly like I'm supposed to, that I'm never supposed to have any trouble ever again. I'm never supposed to have any problems ever again. And I can tell you, as a person who's been a Christian since 1991, that's not true. I, I became a Christian in 1991, and I started having troubles in 1991. And I had plenty all the way through until now my 43rd year, okay? But I can tell you this, that even though it, it feels like sometimes when he doesn't, when God isn't hearing your prayer, he is, he is. But you have these doubts and fears, and all these things sort of creep in when trouble starts to surround you. And the biggest struggle is that struggle within. The struggle in your mind, the struggle in your heart. But the struggles aren't just there. Um, look at verse 2. How long will you people ruin my reputation? How long will you make groundless accusations? How long will you continue your lies? And the fact is, the troubles don't always just come from within. Sometimes the, the troubles come from without. You can be very discouraged, you can be very down on yourself, and then guess what? You run into people 
who just pile it on, who just heap it on. Sometimes they, they may even think that they're doing it with good intentions, but uh, uh, they just keep heaping it on. And people have misunderstood believers forever. People have misunderstood believers forever. The, the, the world, I, I, as a believer, I'm just going to say, the world gets the wrong idea about us sometimes. And the fact is, uh, maybe sometimes their accusations are, are well-founded. Are, are well-founded. Let's, let's not do anything to, 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 to validate the things that the world says about us, okay? But we have to hold strong to what we believe anyway. Um, but let me, give you, let me give you an example of how the world gets it wrong about believers. And this is from very early on. This is from very early on, early on. In the first generation of believers, the first generation, this is just say 20, 30 years after Jesus has ascended, Christianity has spread like wildfire all throughout the Roman Empire. Except that nobody understands it. Nobody really understands it. Uh, and it's, um, uh, it started, it, it's, there people are starting to oppose it because they see it as such a, a growing force and it has political implications because uh, the Christians declare Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. But very soon uh, after people started getting a sort of a glimpse into what it means to be a Christian and what Christians do, they immediately said, these people are cannibals. These people are cannibals. Okay. Now why in the world would they call us cannibals? Why in the world would they call us cannibals? Was that completely unfounded? Was that completely unfounded? What did we just do? We just ate flesh and drank blood. Is that not what we just did? Is that not what we just did? Okay. Obviously not. It is not what we just did. For everybody listening in Facebook land and online, that is not what we just did. We just had a cracker and we had grape juice. That's what we just had together. But what is the imagery? What is the symbolism that we used for all of it? Flesh and blood. And here we are consuming it weekly. Or we do monthly, but the early Christians did it weekly. And so word got out. They eat flesh and they drink blood. They're cannibals. They're dangerous people. we got to get rid of them. Now what would it take? What would it take to change that, repu that reputation? What would it take to change that? It would take you inviting people in to observe, see what we do, explain what we do, talk about what we do here. And so uh, the remedy in our world today, people get the wrong idea about us. Uh, the reputation of Christian, of the word Christian, Christian used to be this high compliment that you gave people. Sometimes people will use it uh, derogatorily now, okay? Because people will get the wrong idea about us. But what does it take? What does it take to change that in their minds? What does it take? It takes us being open, fielding questions, even very uncomfortable questions, and then being able to answer well. And I encourage all of you to do that. I encourage all of you, uh, if you've got people around you who are very skeptical of Christians, very skeptical of believers, uh, they, they don't trust what we do in here, they don't trust what we preach in here, uh, then I would say, please, come sit down and talk to me and ask any question that you want to ask. And my guarantee for you, this is what you would say to them, my guarantee for you is that I won't get offended by it and I will try to answer to the best of my ability. And I'll try to build a bridge between me and you so that you won't have this wrong idea 
about us. Dialogue, real dialogue, uncomfortable dialogue. And it'll do a couple of things. Hopefully it will help the world get a better understanding of who we are, what we do, and what we preach. But it will have incredible benefit for you. Because no matter if you hear these things and understand these things, I mean, the things that I say, the things that I preach, uh, for many of you, it's probably just second nature. You know, you you can almost predict what I'm going to say next. But can you verbalize it yourself? It's a very different thing. Hearing, understanding, uh, and, and, um, understanding everything that the preacher says every time he preaches. That's one thing. But being able to make it come out of your own mouth too, that's a very different skill. And no matter, no amount of reading and no amount of listening will help you speak, right? You have to learn to speak yourself and give a testimony. Now there's an, an interesting thing here in this psalm and it's, it's all over the psalms. You see this little word in here that says interlude, interlude. Um, in, in many of your Bibles, that's, a, it's a different word. What's the word? Selah, Selah. And that's a word that's, um, that's very difficult to translate too. Uh, they have, in this version, they have translated as interlude. What most everybody says is, it's, it's really not a, it's really not a, um, a th- it's not a theological word. It's not something you need to, to sit and ponder or anything like that. It's not something that you have to, uh, just beat your brains out trying to, to, um, translate. What it probably means, what it probably means is, stop singing here. Stop singing here and let the instruments just play for a little bit. Uh, in fact, at the beginning of this psalm, it's very interesting, and I was tempted this morning to uh, have some harp music in the background, but if you look at the, the top of this psalm in your Bible, I don't know if it'll put it in there or not. What does it say? What kind of instrument are you supposed to use? A stringed instrument. You're supposed to have a stringed instrument. So I was thinking either I have a harp in the background or maybe you'd have some violin music, a nice cello. Wouldn't a nice cello be in, uh, in the background be nice while you're reading through this psalm? Maybe we'll do that uh, one of these days. Uh, there, sometimes it gets even specific. In, in a psalm, uh, one or two after this, it says an eight-stringed instrument. So your four-stringed instrument isn't good enough for that psalm. you got to have an eight-stringed instrument uh, for that one. Very interesting that such specific notes are put in there. Of course, we don't have me- music. They didn't have sheet music. They can only tell you the instrument. And then there are some psalms that says, to be sung to the tune of this, as if we know what the tune of that song was. But if and when it was originally written, they knew the tune of that song, so they said, okay, well, we'll just put it in here and, and sing it to that tune as well. Very interesting stuff. But what's really great, what's really great is when you're going through, when you're going through any of the psalms and you come across Selah or this interlude right here, I would encourage you, just pause, take a deep breath, and what the psalmist might be saying here is, that's actually enough for you to chew on for a little bit here. Now just sit and meditate on that for a little bit. What did he say in the first, in the first psalm, or the first verse? He said, I've got struggle within. What did he say in the second one? I've got struggle without. I'm disoriented all over the place. God's not hearing me, and people are saying things about me that are not true. Why don't I just say, that's enough for me to chew on for a minute or two here. All right, then he keeps going on, then he keeps going on. And after he's taken a deep breath, and after he's uh, pondered all of his struggle, then he comes back to some nice orientation, some nice affirmation, some nice, now these things I know to be true, these things, these are the things that are going to keep me going. 
The Lord. Be sure, you can be sure of this. And who's he even talking to? Is he talking to the Lord? Is he talking to everybody else around? Is he just talking to himself? I don't know. But he says, you can be sure of this. Maybe he's looking in the mirror. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And you can be sure enough of this. The Lord set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will answer when I call to him. I'm not just like anybody else. I'm not just like anybody else. Jesus has set me apart. I've got a special life, special calling on my life. There's something different about me. The Lord pays attention to me. He pays special attention to me. That's what David is saying here. Uh, because he said, look, look, all this, all this is collapsing around me. Is it just a coincidence or, or what? What's going on here? No, 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 no. I know this. God has set the godly apart for himself and the Lord will answer me when I call. I have been set apart for a very special work for David that was being king of Israel. For you, that's being sort of an ambassador for Christ in the kingdom of God here in Kennebec County, Sagadahawk County too. Okay? We are set apart. We are set apart. And the godly, the godly. Uh, do you feel godly all the time? How godly do you feel most of the time? But remember what it says in verse 1. He declares me innocent. He declares me innocent. He's filled me with the Holy Spirit. I can do the godly work because He has set me apart for it. He has empowered me for it. And even though I feel like He's not hearing my prayers right now, I remind myself continually, yes, yes, He does hear me. He does hear me. So I can keep on doing the difficult work. But the difficult work is very frustrating Look at verse 4. Don't sin. I feel like he's still talking to himself in the mirror here. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. Um, there have been times, there have been times when, uh, especially lately, when you start thinking about things, when you start um, uh, trying to take things to their logical conclusion, or if you, you see what all's spilling over in our country, uh, and it may just be in your own household too, the things that are spilling over. It's very easy to get frustrated. It's very easy to let anger take control of you. It's very easy for you to just fly into a rage and stay in a rage all day long. I was recently talking to somebody and um, we were talking about difficult issues and the prayer in the conversation, we paused in the conversation to pray and say, now Lord, please don't let us just fume all day long. And then we continued our conversation. And the person I was talking to said, thanks, I tend to do that. Uh, uh, and so, uh, I, and I hope that that other person did a better job that day than I did. Because I still, I felt the angst and the frustration and the, the, the mental tug of war all day long. And the, the interesting thing here is that God, uh, or, or David, and the Holy Spirit speaking through David says, think about it overnight. Here, let me give you some good advice. Think about it overnight and remain silent. And what I think he's trying to say here is, I didn't tell you to not think about it. I didn't tell you to not take all of your beliefs to their logical end. You need to do that. You need to take all the information that you can, all the information that you've got on whatever question you've got, and think about it. Pour over it again and again and again, maybe even all night, but at a certain point, you got to let it go. Because there is no end to arguing. If cable news teaches us anything, there is no end to arguing. There's no end to talking about it until you're blue in the face. Uh, so just 
say your piece, and then after a while, if people need to know where you come from, let them know where you come from. Let them know what you're thinking. But after that, you got to say, you know what? I've talked about it. I'm done. People know. People have heard me. I haven't said anything that anybody else hasn't said. You know, when was the last time somebody really came with, with a fresh new idea? Long time now. So at a certain point, you just got to say, I know where I stand. I know what I think. I know what my conclusions are. And so now, I'm done. Let's go fishing. Because at a certain point, your mouth just gets in the way. And it ruins your spiritual life. <laughs> Offer sacrifices in the right spirit and trust the Lord. The fact is, if all the trouble in your life, if all the trouble in the world, if all the trouble on the Internet gets into your heart and infects your heart such to the point that you can't worship, guess what? You lost. Even if you won the argument, even if you silenced the critic, even if everybody unfriended you finally because you're right and they were wrong and they couldn't stand being around somebody who's right all the time anymore, you lost. And you especially lost if this morning you came here and you were so angry and frustrated that you couldn't worship, that you couldn't worship. Your conflicts with other people will spill into your relationship with God. Don't let that happen. You have to, you have to at some point put it away and just worship. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? If you've got a problem with another believer, you've got a problem with your brother or sister in Christ, and you've come to worship, and he's speaking in terms of temple worship in his day, leave your sacrifice at the altar, unburned, maybe unslaughtered yet, leave your sheep there bleating. Don't go any further. Walk away and go to your brother and say, I love you. We disagree. Please forgive me. Let's shake hands and let's be done with our argument. Okay. Now I'm going to come back. Now I can worship. Now the Lord wants to receive my worship. Now that I can put that away. Now that I've calmed down. Now that I've repented from my rage. Now I can worship. And I, and I offer my sacrifice. I offer my, my worship to the Lord in a right spirit with trust in Him. Okay? All right. Many people say, Who will show us better times? Let your face smile on us, Lord. You have given me greater joy than those who have abundant harvests of grain and new wine. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, will keep me safe. So as we get towards the election, the, oh, everything is going to, everything is going to uh, bubble over and there are going to be even more and more conversations about it. And when somebody says, well, who do you think is better uh, for, for our country? Who do you think will lead us straight ahead, Trump or Biden, or that perfect third-party candidate that's out there that we all say, well, I'd really like that person, but that's not the, the choice that I got. Who is going to take us for, forward and show us better times? What you need to come back and say is this. Well, I'll tell you who I really want to be in charge, and that's Jesus. He's the one with the moral compass. He's the one who knows the truth about everything. He's the one that doesn't even need a special counsel 
to go investigate and find out. Because he knows everything. And he'll, everything he says is right. And if you disagree with him, you're the one in the wrong. How refreshing would that be to be talking to somebody who really knows and you can trust their word. You can trust everything that they're saying. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Because he's the one that gives abundant life. He made that statement. He said, I've come that you'll have life and you'll have it to the full. And do you know who he said that to? Very poor people. Not the middle class. He said that to very poor people. He said, I've come to give you life. Life like you've never had before. Do you want it or do you not want it? Do you want to lie down in peace at night? Do you want to be able to sleep? Who do you want to keep you safe? Jesus. Trust Jesus. No one else. So get into a covenant with Him. He's the one who can declare you innocent. He's righteous. He'll impart His own righteousness to you. He will declare you innocent. He'll wash away your sins. Your original sin, as well as your most recent sin. And even the sins that you're going to commit because you're still not perfect yet. He's the one who said this, In this world you will have trouble, but I, I leave you my peace. Trouble's inevitable. But you can handle trouble as long as you have peace because you know that God is your unmovable rock. And when the world expresses its contempt for you, remember, it's Jesus who gives you your real reputation. What does it say in John chapter 1? To those who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. What better reputation did you want than that? What better name did you want than that? Than child of God. That's it. That's the citizenship that I want. Jesus silences the accuser too. So no matter if you've got struggle within or struggle without, if you've got people accusing you on the outside, I promise you, you've got another one. His name is the devil. The name Satan means accuser. Who can silence the accuser? Only Jesus. Just read Matthew chapter 4. He's the one that Jesus silenced again and again and again. And Jesus sent His Holy Spirit to come into our hearts to put us in the perpetual mood for worship. Your heart and the hands of the Holy Spirit can worship at a moment's notice. And it's a worship that rejuvenates, reorients, revives, and gives us new confidence in the Lord every time. That's why after the verse about worship, David feels God's face shining on him. Everything he knew to be true, which he doubted because of all the trouble and accusation, he now believes again more strongly than ever. And he ends the psalm with great trust, confidence, and hope in the Lord. So when you feel doubt, when we feel doubt here, what do we do? We restate our beliefs. We reaffirm everything that we know uh, to be true. Jesus is Lord. Jesus has forgiven me. The joy of worshiping the Lord gives me strength. I have peace and abundance in Jesus. He has come not only to give me life, but an abundant life, both now and forever. Life is a struggle. And if we don't remind ourselves what we're struggling for, the enemy will win. And you don't want that. So let reaffirmation of your, the reaffirmation of your faith in Jesus be your daily habit. This morning, we restated our faith by taking communion. Next week, next week, we'll restate it again by saying the Apostles' Creed. Last week, we restated our belief and our faith in the Lord by reciting the Lord's Prayer together. 
Every week we sing and we read Scripture. And don't you feel revived and reoriented after you've gone to church, after you've worshipped, after you've assembled, after you've read Scripture, after you've prayed, after you've worshipped? That's why we sing of the cross. That's why we read the Bible. Without this habit, our love for Jesus is more easily shaken. And we don't want that, do we? Daily reaffirmation of your faith. It's the only thing that will get you through the year 2020. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for putting in our culture, our church culture, these frequent reaffirmations of our faith. Help us, to Lord, to not just see it as empty and useless liturgy, empty and useless um, perfunctory acts. Lord, help them to always sink in so that our faith comes away from here reaffirmed and strong enough to face uh, the days ahead. We pray for uh, each other. Help us, Lord, to connect as a church family uh, here in person, online, and help us to always be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other for encouragement and even more so as we see the day approaching. Even soon, even so, come Lord, come Lord Jesus, come soon, come today, it'd sure be nice. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you are dismissed. Have a nice afternoon.